So I woke up at um, 5 a.m. in the morning and we wanted to do the summit push. And the guy comes and says, he's like, look, you're not going to make it. Do you want to stay? I said, no. I know I'm not going to make it, but I'm going to beat myself up for the rest of my life for not trying. So I'm going to get out and try. And by then, if you see my face, I was yellow and I could barely like help myself. But I'm like, I don't want to put anyone as well in danger. Mm -hmm. I will turn back if I have to turn back. And I refuse to make the whole team turn back for me or put anyone else in danger. I went out. We started climbing. First hundred meters. I'm like, okay push through second hundred my body was like not okay 300 I was like okay it was really cold I'm still dealing with my thoughts of plus I've been told you're not gonna make it but I'm like it's not up to him it's up to me it's in my head and then I'm like universe give me a sign just give me a sign if I have to turn back and something very funny happened uh not on the spot I sneezed and I had a crown tooth and because it was the, the pressure there is so high, my crown tooth came out. You know, when you dive so down, they ask you if you have those crown tooth. So it's the same concept. So when it came out, I'm like, maybe God is talking to me. <laughs> maybe I got to turn back. This is the metal set. Hi, this is Dawn, an ultra cyclist and sports PR specialist. And I'm Afshan, an endurance athlete and journalist. And we're on a quest to bring you stories of tenacity, courage, and metal. From athletes in the Middle East and beyond. In today's episode, Dawn and I are tapping into an adventure sport that we haven't really participated much in, but are guilty of consuming a lot of content about. Dubai-based mountaineer Tima Daryan joins us today. A month after she became the first Lebanese woman to ski the last degree of the South Pole, and only a few months away from skiing the last degree of the North Pole. This will conclude her seven-year expedition to achieve the Explorer's Grand Slam Challenge. It's a mountaineering challenge that only about 73 people have completed, of which fewer than 20 are women. As part of the challenge, the 30-year-old has also summited the highest mountain on every continent and became the youngest Arab to summit Mount Everest at the age of 26. She's also the first Arab woman to climb Oyos del Salado, the highest active volcano in the world. Tima has climbed more than 25 high mountains around the world collecting life-changing experiences, fun memories, and lasting friendships as she's ascended, and descending with lessons that have contributed to her growth mindset. As she prepares for the final leg of the Explorer's Grand Slam Challenge, she tells us why she wanted to do it, how she found her calling in the mountains, her most cherished and sometimes hair-raising memories with her expedition, and what every climb has taught her. She also tells us what went into planning and training for each climb, and tips on how you can get into mountaineering. We left this chat with a lot of information and the will to look upward for our next challenge. We hope you do too. Let's get into it. Hi, Tima. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're super excited. We have had a lot of guests, anyone from, and we just talked about it before, motorsports, ultra endurance. Surfers, divers. Surfers, divers, free divers. <laughs> and, you know, our audience has come along on the journey with them, learning about their sports or seeing themselves and some of the athletes that we have on the show. And today they're going to be getting tips on climbing mountains, literally and figuratively. And who better to give them 
this advice and insight into this world than you. You have achieved some of the greatest feats in mountaineering and adventure sports. You've dedicated the last seven years to attempting something that only 73 people in the world have done so far, and only 20 of them have been women. So yeah, we want to hear all about it. And you've done all the seven summits and the South Pole, which you did last year. Yeah. And so now this year at your doorstep is the North Pole. That's correct. Right. And when are you doing that? So I'm training right now for the North Pole. And uh, obviously, I started working on pitching for my sponsorship. If everything goes well, I should be going mid-April to the North Pole. Exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Springtime in the North Pole. <laughs> As a Canadian, I'm like, oh, it must be nice and warm up there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it won't be. So I guess first things first, we want to hear all about your training and, you know, the lead up to this last you know, last challenge to complete this Grand Slam. This feels like a really natural progression for you, right? Because you've been involved in an action and adventure sports for a long time. How old were you? Like, did this start as a child? Were you like a kid? Like when you see a hill, you're like, I'm going to run up that (laughs) climbing up. Not at all. Actually, it's the complete opposite. Growing (laughs) (laughs) Growing up as a child, I was very into my studies. I had a very what normal life looks like, just play around in the sand and nothing too crazy. But I've been always a curious child and I've always like tried to look into things that are scary and how I can like do things that nobody can do. It's about, it's all, it was all about challenging myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then um, at the age of uh, 14, I traveled with my family to Nepal. Mm-hmm. And we were on a small adventure trip and we took a plane that flew over the Himalayas. And while we were in that plane, the pilot says, if you look outside, we're flying right now above the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. And as a 14 year old, I was blown away. I mean, the Himalayas itself looks amazing, but looking at Mount Everest from the top and knowing that some people can climb it, and I'm just like, that's completely mind-blowing. So I came down from the plane, and they gave me a certificate that said I flew over Everest, but I did oh, not okay. climb it. So I looked at my my, my parents, and I'm, I'm coming back to climb it. I know I can climb it. And everybody like laughed, and we forgot about it. But I always kept that certificate with me Mm -hmm. and I completely forgot about it and I started after graduating so I graduated with a finance degree Mm -hmm. something I never enjoyed doing and I was working in that for about three years and I was just uh, doing what normal is but on the side because I grew up in Dubai I was exposed to skydiving and scuba diving and like the extreme sports was growing in here and I was in love with something called bungee jumping Mm-hmm. I did my first bungee jump when I was about 16 years old and I've been just trying to look for bungee jumps I literally took a flight to Macau to do a bungee jump <laughs> and come back <laughs> so I was so obsessed with bungee jumping and then I started scuba diving and from scuba diving um, I went into the advanced and I enjoyed diving so much but then I'm like the water is not for me and I just don't like I like I once saw a shark and I was extremely uncomfortable mm-hmm. while everybody was excited and the water. I'm just <laughs> like I'm I'm a rock. <laughs> Don't move. <laughs> Take me up. <laughs> so I knew the water was not for me, but I I still enjoyed it. And then um, I'm like, let me try skydiving. So I got into skydiving. I got my license. I did a few jumps. And I had a small in 
incident and since then I'm like this is not for me mm-hmm. um, and like the <laughs> alarm would go on every morning because you skydive like at like you need to wake up at four and I just pretend like it's not there um, so I knew it wasn't for me yeah, as well. Right. so I tried all these things and I was still working in finance uh, and I was always into sports and then one day uh, we had a sales kickoff meeting and there was a speaker and he started talking about Mount Everest and his experience on Mount Everest and then everybody was like super into it but there was me standing there extremely nostalgic and I remembered remember that I was 14 and, and the certificate above, and yeah. it just rushed in my head and I'm like I couldn't wait for him to finish and I went up to him and I said what destiny is yeah it's like it, it found some things yeah. really just find you mm-hmm. so I went up to him and I'm like what does it take to climb Mount Everest and he's like look a lot of people come and ask me this and they say they want to climb it but so far no one did if you're serious about it I suggest you do your research and then try to climb another mountain and then see if you want to climb Everest. I'm like, okay. I went back home. I did my research and I figured like people die on the mountain. It's extremely dangerous. And then I saw the movie Mount Everest. I'm like, what am I? Is that my dream? Okay, flying (laughs) over it was like really easy. I don't think climbing it is going to be that hard. Mm -hmm. But then I'm like, whatever, I'm going to do it. I'm not, I'm like, I'm not scared. I'll try my first mountain. And then in 2016, I went and it happened that the earliest trip was Mount Elbrus. And I didn't even know what Elbrus was. And it turned out to be the highest mountain in Europe. Europe. Yeah. Great. So it was like 5,642 and it was a big team. And climbing Mount Elbrus was an experience because I wasn't in a very good place at that time I was I think 22 or 23 and I was going through a lot mm-hmm. um, and for any 22 or 23 years old any early 20s basically we're thinking about our career relationships people who we are mm-hmm. and we're insecure we're not sure mm-hmm. and I was going through a lot and after I came back from that mountain things changed. I mean, my mindset was different. And it was just a 10-day climb. Mm-hmm. Everything, like, the way I felt was different. And I'm like, I'm, I'm so strong. I'm so confident. And I can't believe, like, what my, de- my body did. Mm-hmm. It pushed through limits. Mm. So I discovered that it was the highest mountain on the continent. And then the seven summits topic came up. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, let's do a Concagua. And I'm like, like... Everest was on hold because now mm. I was really enjoying mountaineering and I wanted to become mm. a great mountaineer before I get myself mm-hmm. on Mount Everest. Mm. And that's my story in a nutshell. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned how this all came about, right? Mm. And then the trip that you took that completely changed the way you saw mountaineering. When I was in an expedition in Bhutan, one of our climbing guides told me that the only reason I go to mountains is because they call out to me. Mm. Is that the same feeling that you have with mountains? I mean, this is how it started. And then I started chasing it because I really didn't want to do the Seven Summits. I just wanted to do Everest and it was something I wanted to collect and I just wanted to enjoy a fit life and generate a healthy, Mm -hmm. fit lifestyle. But then the seven summits came up and a lot of things happened throughout the journey. And besides the seven summits, people would like randomly tell me, hey, do you want to join this expedition? I'm like, okay, do you want to join? And I mean, it was really coming to me at some point, even when I don't want it to come because I had to focus on my career. But 
I stopped focusing on my career and I knew it was my calling. So I just quit my career and focused on mountaineering. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Do you remember where you actually heard about the Grand Slam? Like, was there a moment that somebody was like, hey, you should try that? Do you remember like what the context was? I mean, right after I came back from Mount Elbrus mm-hmm. and the team was talking and uh, there was a guy there. He's like, oh, do you know you just did one of the seven highest mountains, uh, seven highest mountains, like, the seven, one of the seven summits. Mm-hmm. So I said, what is that? And he's like, so one, two, three. Mm-hmm. They ex- and he explained and the highest mountain in every continent. And I was blown away. And I'm like, OK, so you think w- when is the next season? So I got the calendar and I looked at the every mountain has a specific season that you can climb and the next one was uh, Aconcagua and Aconcagua is a very tough mountain and where when it that? comes to uh, so it's in South America mm-hmm. and it's it's uh, it's hard because one uh, South America is very close to the equator mm-hmm. so the altitude there is a completely different game mm. it's it's hard and uh, I said, okay, I'll just go then. And uh, it was it was an interesting story because um, so it was only three months, almost three months after uh, my climb on Elbrus, and I couldn't get days off from my job, and I didn't want to lose my job. Mm-hmm. And then I had to deal with uh, my father, who kept on saying, no, you cannot go, because you tried it, and I think it's enough, and I don't think you should continue in that. You just said you want to try. How old were you? I was 23. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when I start. So I said, okay, now I need to find a way to get permission. And now that I think about it, I'm furious <laughs> to get permission <laughs> to go and like climb my mountain. And two, I need to convince my, my manager that I really need to climb that mountain. Mm-hmm. So I first went to work. And I'm like, let me deal with this. I, <laughs> deal I with got, the manager first. Yeah. <laughs> and she's that's like, the easier one. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I thought, right? She's like, oh, no, 15 days is a lot. I'm like, okay, I'll just take it unpaid. No, we have events coming up. You need to stay. I said, okay, I'll try again. I went back home, same thing. I did the communication, didn't work. I'm like, let me do presentations. <laughs> I built up a PowerPoint for my father and for them. Let me put all my skills to Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I kept on going back and forth. I kept on bombarding both my father and my manager with emails. Uh, and by the end of it, they gave up and they're like, you know what? Just do it. Go. And my <laughs> you last... just wore them down. Yeah, yeah just and wore like, them down. Yeah, the, exactly. Like, I, I'm not going to stop. I, I, and I, well, there, there were only, what well, there was 15 days before the trip. And they kept, everything was saying no. And then I said, do you know how persistent I am? And I will not stop. And then both of them were like, go. So perfect. So I booked my trip and I went. But didn't go according to plan. So I was training for it. I, I was very confident. I knew I can do it. But um, I clearly signed up with the wrong expedition. That's one. But I can't fully blame it on the expedition. There was a big part on me. Uh, it was bad planning. I was so focused on convincing everyone that I need to go and I wanted to get that permission. But I completely forgot to do, not forgot, but I wasn't doing my research properly. I mm-hmm. was just too excited to get myself there and mm-hmm. to just get what I want. Because when I got there, we started climbing and almost 15 days 15 days into the climb things turned around for us uh, we were stuck in a very bad uh, weather for about five days and it was really stormy it was really windy and then we got to camp one 
and we did not acclimatize properly so we had to go to camp two and then camp three we were a team of three people and we had a guide from from argentina after getting to camp three i was gone Mm. like i was very high on altitude sickness i was throwing up there was not enough water in my system nothing my system would just reject any food or water so i was very weak and I was scared because I've never felt so sick. Mm. And I don't know what altitude sickness because I experienced a little bit on Elvis, but that was too extreme for me. Mm-hmm. So I woke up at 5 a.m. in the morning and we wanted to do the summit push. And the guy comes and says, he's like, look, you're not going to make it. Do you want to stay? I said, no. I know I'm not going to make it, but I'm going to beat myself up for the rest of my life for not trying. Don't try mm-hmm. It. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get out and try. And by then, if you see my face, I was yellow and I could barely like help myself. But I'm like, I don't want to put anyone as well in danger. Mm-hmm. I will turn back if I have to turn back. And mm-hmm. I refuse to make the whole team turn back for me or mm-hmm. put anyone else in danger. So I, I went out. We started climbing. First hundred mi- meters, I'm like, okay, push through. Second hundred, my body was like, not okay. Th- 300, I was like, okay. It was really cold. I'm still dealing with my thoughts of, plus, I've been told, you're not going to make it. But I'm like, it's not up to him. It's up to me. It's in my head. And then I'm like, universe, just give me a sign if I have to turn back. And something very funny happened. Uh, Not on the spot. I sneezed and I had a crown tooth. And because it was the, the pressure there is so high, my crown tooth came out. You know, when you dive so down, they ask you if you have those crown tooth. So it's the same concept. So when it came out, I'm like, maybe God is talking to me. <laughs> maybe I got to turn back. So I actually did the decision and I turned back. Mm. And that was one of the toughest decisions. I'm sure. But I think that was mm. one of the mountains that got me so strong. And got me so confident in my mountaineering because I went back, I did the reflection, and I googled everything on how to improve my performance Mm -hmm. on the mountain. What is it that I need to do? Because it was no joke. Mm -hmm. I was overconfident and it hurts me. So I had to figure out always. And this is where I started taking courses. I started practicing. I started properly training. And then I went back the next year and I promised myself if I summit Aconcagua, I'm going to go and celebrate by summiting the second highest mountain in South America. Yeah. And I didn't even know what was the second highest mountain in America. <laughs> or where it was. Did you know where it was? I knew it was in Chile. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm going to have to take a flight from Argentina to Chile right, right. Uh, after the climb. So I trained and uh, I wasn't overconfident, but I was properly trained. Mm-hmm. The planning was properly done. I really stick to the plan and I was very uh, consistent mm. with what I was doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it was the next year, the next season came, I flew there. And this time I didn't take even a guide or an expedition. Yeah. I decided to do it with three of my friends. And uh, we went up there as a team. And uh, I think it was one of the most, really, one of the very memorable expeditions I've had because we did everything from scratch. Mm. And we summited that mountain. But it was really interesting to stand where I couldn't continue the Mm -hmm. year before and just reflect on how strong I am now and realizing what it really takes to win, to to achieve winning performance, to actually summit a mountain or summit a goal that you set to yourself. So I came back down and I took a flight back to Chile and I said, okay, I'm not going to like, 
I don't have to summit, but I just want to see it. And it turned out to be the highest active volcano in the world. <laughs> I, okay, great. So we got there and uh, because we were already acclimatized from the mountain, we managed to summit the uh, Ojos del Salado, which is at 6,862 meters. And, uh, and that was my second uh, mountain. A mountain can humble you. Uh, it's so humbling, right? Like even as cyclists, just climbing up a mountain, you know how yeah. humbling it can be. When I did my first and only big climb, which is Kilimanjaro, mm. I remember some of the fittest people fell ill on that, on that climb because uh, the ego got the better of them. Yeah. And they tried to summit way quicker than what the guides asked them to kind of, the pace that the guides had asked them to keep. Right? Yeah. So just coming back to that, you've learned so many things just from the first few climbs that you did, right? And you've brought that back, you've reflected, and you've changed course and tra- changed your strategy. You've lived here in the UAE for the last 20 years. That's correct. So how did that factor in for you with, as far as training was concerned, because I remember I used to like climb up the JLT towers, <laughs> like 80 flights and, you know, do that every single day just to prepare myself for a very, for not the climbs that you've been doing. So I'm pretty sure there's a different sort of training that went into what you were trying to achieve. I mean, uh, no, Kilimanjaro isn't that easy. And like you climbing the JLT towers is a great idea. I hope you had a backpack on. I did have a backpack on. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, training in the UAE was very interesting uh, because we used to drive all the way to Ras al-Khaimah. And Ras al-Khaimah back then wasn't um, the destination Mm -hmm. of the outdoors. It was still 2016. And I explored one of the trails with one of my friends who actually climbed with me, Mount Elbrus. And together we figured out the route, we had the app, and we realized, okay, we can figure out routes. And then you get to know Jabal Jess is the highest mountain in the UAE, it's at 2,000 meters. But Jabal Jess is not one trail, there's so many trails, and you don't get to the summit really. There's one trail which recently opened that gets you a little bit lower than the summit, around 1,700 meters. (laughs) We call it the top, top, and the top, top, top. (laughs) As we cycle up, you're like, oh, first stop, and then the top, and then the top. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> so, yeah, I started discovering trails and I started learning about the outdoors in the UAE. And there's the stairways to heaven, and I really wanted to do yeah. it. So, I figured out a way and I got a strong body to do it with, and we did it. And then I collected so many trails in the UAE, and it was really nice. So, I've done all my training in Ras al Khaimah, uh, a little bit of Hatta because there are some mountains, but most of it was uh, also running. Um, mm-hmm. I do a lot of heart training, so my training is really based on high intensity and low intensity. I work a lot on building my base, so most of the time you wouldn't see me training and out of breath and sweating and pulling trucks and wheel. <laughs> Instead, I train slow and steady, mm-hmm. but for a long time, so I can build endurance because mountains needs a lot of endurance. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the most boring way to train, but it really pays off on the mountain. So what I do is when I don't have upcoming expedition, I focus on training on uh, level two or tops three. So I take the average heart rate mm-hmm. and I train on it. Yeah. And it's just slow, steady, and sometimes I can be on the stairmasters for three hours. Yeah. Uh, I do get in a lot of work done because like I'm not over the place. <laughs> but yeah, 
Uh, this is exciting me. Because yeah. <laughs> I told you before, like, I've got an obsession with, like, mountaineering content and storytelling and stuff. Yeah. So I just find it fascinating because I grew up near the ocean. Nice. And never really got an appreciation for mountains until I spent some time in the Alps. And not even, you know, like, I took the cable car up Mont Blanc. <laughs> but just there's something magical about mountains. Like, there's something completely, I don't know... It's very spiritual, even even if I haven't, you know, I haven't climbed it, but just seeing how small <laughs> you, you are, feel, yeah. yeah, in comparison to these magnificent mountain ranges, it's just amazing. And I love hearing that you do zone two training because I'm, all, you know, in my conversation with my coach recently, like he's very much on, you know, it seems like quite boring training to people, but it's all about building up yeah. and building your yeah. endurance for a long period of yeah. time. I'm going to be a bit selfish and ask a question that I want to know too. <laughs> what four or five, three, four or five tips would you give to somebody who wants to get into mountaineering? Like, and what would you say <laughs> would be a first climb, you know, a good first climb based on your experience throughout this whole journey? That's a great question because a lot of people come up to me and say, do you think I can climb a mountain? Do I look fit enough? First, it's not about how you look. Yeah. It's really about how strong your heart is, your strength, and your mind mm-hmm. as well. So mountaineering is almost 70 to 80% about your mindset. Mental, yeah. So one, have at least a minimum level of fitness and a healthy lifestyle. And not healthy lifestyle like have salads every day. No, but like a lifestyle where you have balanced meal, proper strength. You know you can run at least five kilometers. It's somewhere to start from. One kilometer is also somewhere to start from. But you need to start somewhere. So start by walking and seeing how long you can go and then do a run and then get into fitness if you're not fit enough. Mm -hmm. If you're already fit enough, that's great. What I would suggest is get out there on a trail and try climbing a mountain or try just try just hiking because hiking and mountaineering and being on a mountain is different than being on a flat surface mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. there's an incline i know you can do incline on the treadmill but it's a completely different mm-hmm. uh, game when yeah. there's a different terrain so you have uh, the, the rocks and it can get slippery you need to have the right shoes so you really need to understand how it works for you to be able to build your own system on those trails mm-hmm. so get out there try to hike and if you think the hike is easy then go into an intermediate I mean, in my case, I went straight to Mount Elbrus, <laughs> now that I think about it. But the thing is, I was very fit. I was always working out, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm, I've hiked a hill, I would say. But I was very fit, and that's what helped me. And mm-hmm. I mean, you, sometimes you also see people who are not fit on the mountain, uh, but they struggle. Mm-hmm. And it turns out to be one of the worst experiences yeah. of their lives. Instead of like really like being Need there to be pleasurable and just, that, yeah, yeah. Really, at least part of it. <laughs> yeah. Becoming one with the mountain is something yeah. very spiritual and beautiful. Yeah. And you won't get that feeling when your body is in pain struggling. Mm. So go prepared. So try to hike, uh, try different terrains. After trying, if you want to go up a mountain, see something that is affordable so you don't have to invest in all the gear. I chose Elbrus, but I never bought my gear. I really rented 80% mm. of my gear. Mm-hmm. I got just a Gore-Tex pant and jacket. 
and my base layers was something that I've already had. I rented the boots, I rented the ice axe, I got a backpack. So I tried to minimize my cost because I didn't know if I'm going to enjoy this or not. Mm-hmm. That's the rookie mistake I made. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a whole lot of stuff and now it's like in my cupboard and it hasn't Well, it hasn't anyone seen listening, the light of day. you can borrow <laughs> some of it from Afshan. Yes. <laughs> yes, please, please contact us at the metal set and I will give you my gear. <laughs> That's a great business to start. <laughs> so so yeah don't invest a lot in gear try first and after you try set a plan if you want to do not everybody wants to do the seven summits and not everybody wants to ski to the south pole mm. i mean it's a calling sometimes it's something you want to try go for it but like you don't even have to do mountains like everest just because it's famous or just because everybody knows it if you just want to climb any mountain it's still something and it's still going to like develop your <laughs> growth mindset you're still gonna go through the journey it doesn't have to be a famous mountain i happen to do the seven summits because i mean i was sucked into that concept (laughs) and i'm like i'm someone who's extremely stubborn and when i set my mind to something sometimes i feel bad i'm like i really don't want to set it so i don't want to set it because i'm gonna get stuck i've been stuck in this for eight years to finish that project and in 2019 it was driving me crazy but okay i'm shifting away from the topic so yes try to be fit try to hike different terrains don't buy the gear rent the gear try your first big mountain and after that set a plan how <laughs> how do you want to move forward is it a side hobby that you want to do or is it something you want to get experience in yeah that's very excellent yeah. i'm gonna take away and after after my next race i'm gonna sit down and consider <laughs> well if you are considering you know who to call <laughs> yeah yeah i do <laughs> both of us <laughs> yeah, yeah for sure <laughs> um you've obviously all the challenges that you've done you've had a team or you've gone with an expedition uh so it's all about teamwork yeah. you know summiting is a conjunctive challenge it's about human connections cooperation trust respect and humility right so Correct. it's like you decided that you didn't want to put your teammates in trouble so you would like assess and reassess as you would go ahead selecting the right team then is super super important i imagine yeah what have you learned in the process of doing these challenges in terms of putting a team together and you know the teams that you've worked with so far i mean i've worked with a lot of teams since i've climbed more than 25 mountains i've been in different expeditions some ex- expeditions were planned with my friends some expeditions were planned with my partner some expeditions were planned with random people that i sign up and just say I hope there are nice people on the trip. (laughs) But in general, people who are climbing a mountain Mm. are all there for similar reasons, sometimes completely different. So you just need to go there with an open mind. This episode is supported by Deep Dive Dubai. We know that our listeners love awesome adventures. And take it from us, it doesn't get more awe-inspiring than the world's deepest pool. Measuring a record-breaking 60 meters, Deep Dive Dubai gives both scuba and freedivers the ability to discover an underwater world complete with the latest in dive technology and an abandoned sunken city. For those new to diving, like me, it's the ideal place to get started. And for those experienced to expert divers out there, it's the perfect place to hone your skills with exceptional facilities, expert staff, and state-of-the-art technology. Since it opened in 2021, it has mesmerized visitors and continues to deliver extraordinary experiences seven days a week. For more information and to book your experience, visit deepdivedubai.com. 
So I wasn't someone who's very comfortable to join groups. I've been also like, and I don't know if some people can relate to this. I'm shy and I don't look like I'm a shy person, but I am. And two, I just don't like going in a big group when I'm alone. And it's something that I have to practice and to Mm. get myself out there and and to be comfortable with everybody and to talk. And sometimes I come off like, who does she think herself? And why isn't she contributing to the conversation or something? Because at the beginning, I'm just weird until I settle in. So I try to avoid groups. I I like going with my friends. But when you choose a group, you need to look into the company, who the company is, who have previously been on that trip with this company or with the guide or with the expedition. You need to do your research. You can go on Instagram, look it up, ask people who have tagged that company. What do you think of the company? Was the guide good? Because mm-hmm. I've had a horrible guide on like Concagua, but I've had, for example, an amazing guy right now on Vincent. Mm-hmm. And it, it's definitely, it, it makes a huge change on the mountain when your leader knows what he's doing mm-hmm. and there's serenity in his calmness mm-hmm. and y- you know where you're going. You can trust your leader without even thinking twice. And other expeditions, no. Uh, for example, on Denali, like I went with one of the great expeditions, but I had a really a person, a guide who who knew the the way but couldn't lead. You cannot ask your clients, would you like to turn around or would you like to continue? I think you need to make that decision sometimes mm. because we were nine people. So be careful who you go with. And there are a lot of scams. So please be careful of that as well. Don't sign up with anyone. Ask people. Make sure there are people who have went with these people. And uh, there's plenty of uh, new uh, outdoor companies that are starting even in the Middle East mm-hmm. who are subcontracting people from outside. So they're choosing the right people. Yeah. You can also choose that being uh, on this side of the world. So what I would say is always go on an expedition with an open mind, expect to meet the best and the worst people. And it's all about viewing things through a growth mindset, really. Mm. I mean, I, when you don't like someone, you're going to have to adapt, you're going to have to adjust, <laughs> and you're going to have to like tackle yeah. around the situation with them. Either avoid them if this is the best solution, or either try to see things. And that's coming out from a person who just like, like I just want to go and climb, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then really when, when there's nice teamwork, it, it makes the expedition different. And there's a lot of laughing, there's a lot of joking, and like there's in the middle of the storm, and we might die in a minute, but it's so funny because we've built like this inside joke that it's working out and you're just standing there and like, I'm having the best time of my life. I don't care if I die right now. <laughs> so it does like make or break the expedition, mm, but yeah. just go with an open mind. I think I can relate to that a lot because I spend a lot of time alone on a bike. <laughs> a lot, of, a lot, a lot of alone time. But you have these interaction sometimes i mean for the most part with ultra cycling we're kind of like a ragtag group of misfits <laughs> like for the most part i can't remember anyone that i think you know i'm like oh, i don't really like that guy like everyone's pretty cool generally that i've met on races but i always have these moments in races of like you know someone asked me last week they were like Are you, do you ever get lonely in these races and i was like no because i have moments human moments with people that i would just never ever have in any other context oh, nice. You know, like, and they're beautiful moments of connection or kindness or compassion, you know, that really restores your faith in humanity sometimes. Have you had any of those, like, beyond being in a storm and laughing? (laughs) Oh, yeah, not all the time. But does any stick out in your mind? Yeah. 
what's really nice on the mountain is people like on the mountain we're all going on the on the same journey i'll say different journey but to the same goal to the mm. summit right we all know how tough the journey is going to be so when you see somebody struggling you will stand and help them obviously if you're not extremely selfish and all you can mm. see is your journey on your mm. summit uh, there are these people are very few but like I've had those moments on Aconcagua for example my second time I was extremely high on altitude and I was all over the place and when I'm high on altitude I figured that away it feels like you're extremely tipsy and now I'm just drinking water from everybody on the mountain and uh, sharing my snacks and like trading snacks and and yes you do have this this culture this vibe uh, and, and it's nice it's nice and even at the staff call, I had one of the best um, team members and it happened that we were sharing a tent and just from sharing the tent and putting the tent together in the middle of the storm, it's minus 55, there's so much happening and you're extremely exhausted and tired. You start doing things for each other without feeling like, okay, um, I'm going to go out. Do you want me to do like do something? Do you want me to take this out? You start, it's, it just comes naturally because mm-hmm. it's not that you're responsible for that person, but you've built this team connection and it's very beautiful. Mm. And it, you're doing it out of compassion mm. and you can feel their struggle and they can feel your struggle, but you're trying to make that struggle the best moment of your life in one way mm-hmm. or another. Yeah. So there's a lot of kindness, there's a lot of compassion. And again, it's all about the people you're around. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is a good segue into your trip to the South Pole. Tell us more about that. How was it? Was it the most challenging amongst like the seven summits and then the South Pole, which was the most challenging? Um, I wouldn't say the South Pole was the most challenging, mm-hmm. but it was definitely the cold so Antarctica is the fifth biggest continent in the world it's uh, so it doesn't mean it's that big because there are seven continents but it's the size of the US and Mexico together Mm -hmm. and it's all an ice sheet and it's extremely cold and it drops down to minus 55 when I was there to minus 60 sometimes and that's really really cold and frostbite is one of the very common things that people develop and it's not easy. So I went there, obviously, with an open mind. I know climbing Mount Vincent, so I went, my expedition was divided into two parts. One to climb the highest mountain on the continent, which was my last summit from the seven summits. And two is to ski to the South Pole. I've never skied to the South Pole or anywhere else. Like, you can ski downhill, but I've never skied. Cross country. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I climbed Mount Vincent. It was, the trail was easy. It's doable. Anybody can do Mount Vincent, but it's extremely hard when it gets cold. Mm. It's extremely difficult when it gets windy. Mm. And we had to climb up the summit on a very bad day because we waited too long and the weather wasn't getting any better. So it's two camps above base camp. So you have Vincent base camp and then you go up to low camp and you're still below 3,000, but then you go up to high camp and then you're about 3,700 meters, I think. And then from high camp, you need to go to the summit. But to go from low camp to high camp, we had to wait for at least three days. First day we waited, second day we went halfway up, but then the weather just flipped on us and it was completely outside our control it Mm -hmm. was so stormy the wind was blowing a lot of snow we couldn't see and we went up on ropes so there was a lot of fixed ropes so we had to turn back down and then we went up the next day 
we made it, but then we were stuck again on low uh, on high camp now because the weather wouldn't get any better, and it's really a tough place to be waiting for a good weather and you just want to summit and now you're, you're you still have the food and you don't want to waste food your snacks you need to like to keep back up mm -hmm. and and you're carrying a lot of weight on that mountain and then we made it to the summit but we chose the only day because it was one of the last days it was the it was 35 uh, um, wind knots 35 uh, knots mm -hmm. and it was minus 42 degrees <laughs> we started off and you know when you climb inside a cloud and you cannot see anything yeah, yeah. you know when the airplane goes inside the cloud and yeah, you look yeah. outside the window and there's nothing that you can see i was you, we were literally standing there and just waiting for every st so every step we had to take we had to wait for the wind to calm down a little bit because I, the wind can blow you away mm. not so far away but you can fall down like you're standing on one leg, you need to keep that balance and take that next step. And you're going uphill, that's why. And it's very exposed. So that was one of the toughest times I've been on the mountain because it was so cold. I had all my layers on. I had my mittens on and it would still feel extremely cold. Mm. And my ski goggles were frozen. And when that happens and you can't see now, it's a com now you need to like peek and be able to see through your ski goggles. And you just had to like deal with all that. But we made it to the summit. We came back down. And then uh, we went back to Union Glacier. And I think um, anybody who ever had the chance to go to Antarctica definitely do it. Union Glacier is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. It's like a camp and a village and like the city in Antarctica, Aww. which consists of mm. four tents, one <laughs> dining tent, which is big, a, a library tent, oh. a gift shop tent, oh. And Good souvenirs for and everyone. It, yes, <laughs> and it was so exciting to see something like that yeah. in the middle of nowhere. And then you have the toilets, you have showers, oh. and you have those big <laughs> the, trucks. The thing that you look forward to the most yes. yeah. after a certain exactly. point. <laughs> <laughs> And you have those trucks and those small cars. It feels like you are in Disneyland or in some candy land, which is, and everything is white. All the people who work there are extremely happy. They come for like three weeks and then they leave. They cook, they clean, they take care of the camp. There's the camp manager. It's like a mini town that everybody knows everybody. And I, I, like, I liked, I loved it so much that I said, one day I'm just going to come here and like have them clean or something. I just yeah, want to yeah. be part of this team. Yeah. And it's really nice to see. And we set up our tents somewhere next to it. So we're still sleeping in basic tents. And bear in mind, the sun in Antarctica does not set mm. during that season. So at 2 a.m. in the morning, it, the sun is right there. <laughs> so the sun goes around us in circles. So it's just either to the left or to the right in where you're standing. <laughs> so and it, it gets confusing sometimes. Yeah. Like, what time is it? What time is it? And there's no time zone. Uh, so you follow the time zone that you want. So we continued <laughs> following the time zone of cheating. So were people just like, some people were sleeping at a certain time and then other people like, I are mean, on different parts of Antarctica, they do. Yeah. Uh, but in, on Union Glacier, we yeah. all follow the Chile because oh, we right. fly from Chile. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just easier. You won't get jet lagged. So you yeah, just yeah. follow the time zone of Chile. Yeah. That's wild. Uh, it, it's it's interesting because some of the most seemingly insignificant things of daily life mm. seem like simple pleasures when you're put in that situation, right? Oh, yeah. I remember when I was climbing, we would get popcorn on the camps. And to me, to date, 
I feel like that is the best popcorn I have ever had nice. in my life. Nice, yeah. Like nothing can recreate that feeling, <laughs> right? So I can totally relate to like how like a shower or some of these small pleasures yes. that you find along the way just those are, are the just, celebrations yeah. really. Yeah. Mm. Like on Everest my biggest celebration was having my half bottle of coke after coming <laughs> from my third round of the meditation. <laughs> like this is the best coke of my life yeah, like exactly. I, I, I know should i drink it all or should i leave it <laughs> like yeah you start thinking about these little things yeah. and it's just great yeah. so yeah union glacier is really really beautiful and i did a short video on my instagram we'll look about it, it yeah and then we took a flight and we went and which dropped us in the middle of nowhere on the continent and the continent is all the same mm. it's just flat white continents and it dropped us on the plateau at 3000 meters and we just took our sleds with us our sleds had everything prepared so we had our food and there's this whole youtube video of what goes inside the sled that came out to be funny with that i did with my friend <laughs> so we wear two base layers mm. And we have our, uh, I would call it the South Pole suit because it felt like the South Pole suit. So like a red uh, Gore-Tex pant with uh, the jacket, but they're made for the South Pole. And our face is covered, our hands are covered. We have the ski boots. We take our skis off the plane. We take our sleds. The sled is about 45 kgs, which is very heavy. But then it's just really hard when you first start to ski to pull it with you. But mm. once it's pulled, it feels so much easier. And now it's all about the mental games. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what I signed up to, but I knew it was going to be fun. But then <laughs> I'm just like, this is going to take forever. We started skiing. And every day we ski for about eight hours. And between those eight hours, so we call them the blocks. We divide every hour as a block. Mm -hmm. And between those eight hours, every hour we have a 12-minute break. And it's exactly 12 minutes because we don't want our body to cool down. Because as you're skiing, your body is producing heat. Heat, Once you stop, it's... It's yeah. re- and you don't want to sweat. Yeah. So the way we ski is, and we, we're not wearing a lot of clothes. Like if you think, oh, you're going to the South Pole, it's minus 55 degrees. You think you're putting on a lot of layers. Mm. All I had was two base layers on top of each other and the jacket and the pants, that's it. Mm. But once we take that uh, break, we put on the big down jacket. Mm-mm-mm. So we ski, we take a break, we ski, we take a break for about eight hours. The first two hours are okay. I mean, the first hour is always trying to get yourself together you just woke up you're you're trying to focus ski properly make sure you the sled is okay nothing is stuck and then you take a break thank god for a break okay you fuel up so and fueling up is the, the, the biggest part because what happens is you ski and you're burning so much calories Mm-mm-mm. and then when you fuel again you get that kick and what we're eating is basically sugar, sugar. and fat yeah. sugar and fat all the time yeah And on top of all of this, you need to, that's what they say at least, you got to take in 4,000 calories Mm. after that day. Mm. And taking in 4,000 calories is a lot lot of food. It's hard work. Yeah. It is, yeah. And I couldn't do it. But anyway, I'm like, I'll just feed myself as much as I can. So your body would deplete after that hour, and then you take those sugar blocks, mm. and then it spikes up again. And <laughs> then you're like, oh, you're like, <laughs> I'm ready to go, go again. <laughs> Jumping then, off walls. Yes, yeah, you start skiing. 
45 into it, you're like, oh my God, has it been an hour? You lose track of time. So first two days, I said, I don't want to listen to podcasts, no music, no nothing. I just want to be with myself and mm, reflect mm-hmm. and get deep into my thought. Third day, I'm like, not going to happen. <laughs> no, I need someone to talk to me because you're just on your own. I'm sure too, you, like your vista is just all white, yes. right? Yes, white and uh, the sky, blue, white mm. and blue, white and blue all the time. There's no point of reference because, right. and sometimes... Does it feel like you're not moving? Yeah, sometimes? sometimes I'm like, are we going in circles? Did we mess up the way? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I trust him. But then we stop, I'm like, man, did you mess up the way? I feel we went yeah. in a circle. He's like, Timo, no. I'm like, why? <laughs> We're not going straight. We're going like left and right. <laughs> and he's the one who's navigating. Yeah. So it was was like this for about 10 days and the hardest part is when you get to camp I call myself the mountain gypsy and I really mm. felt as a gypsy on that mm. continent because it doesn't matter where you just stand okay I'm gonna camp here and then that's it you camp yeah. there and it felt really nice everywhere is home so we just take out our tents and this is where the hard work starts especially when it's extremely windy and everything is blowing and the last thing you want is the wind to blow away your tent i've already mentioned my teammate uh, so we were sharing a tent together we have built a proper system where i have recognized my strengths and weaknesses and he have done the same he was one of the funniest people i've been with and Sometimes, like, he would tease me a lot about, oh, you're a woman, I know you can do it. I'm like, I'm going to show you that I can do it. But then I'm like, I'm doing all the work now. (laughs) (laughs) And it was really interesting. But then we knew. So there are parts where I couldn't really, like, plug it in properly with the, with the tent and then he would do it better so I'm like okay put my ego away just let him do it mm. and it was proper teamwork uh, by setting up a camp and then we finish and we take rounds and digging toilets so if you want to go to the toilet that's a whole different story so you need to dig a very 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 deep hole for you to be able to put a bucket in and take mm. Like to be comfortable for the yeah. foot, for the whole team, right? Yeah. yeah. So sometimes we had to dig it, and you're extremely exhausted after skiing. Yeah. But then you go inside the tent, and you're like, "I'm so done. Like I just want to pass out." And now you have to fuel yourself. You need to take dinner, mm. and dinner is usually those dry food. Mm. We just boil this uh, hot water. So we bring in snow, we boil it, and we put the water inside the dry food and it can and that's it yeah you'd like have, space food yeah it's uh, not like space food <laughs> like it comes it's called the mountain house it can be a risotto it can be chicken fajita is it good and it's really good yeah some are good but some are really horrible it really depends on <laughs> what you choose and for most part you have to use your imagination that too yeah, <laughs> that too. how long did planning all of this take to go to the south pole and do this like what what is like how long does the planning take for all of this okay so i started planning for the south pole i mean almost three months ahead okay. but it was much easier because i did not go with friends and mm. to explore mm. and I went with a guided expedition Mm. and it's a completely different game. I've never skied to a pole or anything Mm. and it makes sense to go with someone who's experienced. So yeah, I I wouldn't say the planning was a big part of for Mm. me, but definitely with training, with knowing what to get, with the gear, with my snacks, with my food and so on. And then once we get to uh, Union Glacier, there's a lot of planning that happens with the guide Mm. who also takes care of everything. And he's the one who's guiding us on, you need to make sure you have this and that and that. Mm. There's a checklist. So there is definitely a lot of planning, but I wouldn't say it's the same as doing it on your own. 
You've talked about the mountains helping you develop a growth mindset. I was really struck with your story about Aconcagua, like trying to make that ascent, you know, and then having to make that decision, which I'm sure was so difficult, particularly when you get buy-in from your father and then, you know, your manager and stuff. But I was really struck with you coming back because you were 22 or 23 at the time. I I think it's 2016. I'm 30 now. So... 20, uh, my math. <laughs> I can uh, see all the numbers. <laughs> it's it's a good thing we're in different professions. 22. Right? <laughs> no, but when you're 22, right, coming back in, like, that would be such a, a hit to your ego. I remember being 22, you know, like five years. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, like, I remember being 22 and just having kind of taking that experience, though, and then turning it into you know, a learning and how you can do better and not letting that kind of get you down and keep going. So how did mountaineering help you develop that mindset? Or do you think you had it all along? I really believe that every mountain has a specific character to contribute to my personality. Growing up, I've been always impulsive, very stubborn. I wouldn't listen. I just do what I need to do. I still have those things, but I just use them when I really, really need to use them. But otherwise, obviously, we grow up, we mature, but like growing up through with mountaineering in my life all the time and experiencing uh, situations on the mountain where my life depends on it. So I can either die or live and I need to make decision. I cannot crack under pressure. I'm stuck in a storm. My fears, how to deal with my fears. When my mind takes control over me and I can't cross that ladder because the crevasse looks so big and deep that I might not even come back if I fall. And you start, there's so much that happened on every mountain. And the technique that I was able to build on the mountain was what was building that growth mindset. And I didn't know I was building that growth mindset. I just thought, oh, okay, I'm just becoming mature. I'm growing up. But it was really helping me with so many things. It's what helped me to quit uh, an office job because I believe it's not for me. And I knew there was something as a bigger calling for me and I had to follow it. Although it was one of the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. And I just followed it. I wasn't scared to take that step. And I'm a big believer, if you don't try, you will never know. And it's it's the same on the mountains. So when I realized I had all those skills that I was able to maneuver around and use and activate, I'm like, maybe I can put them into like a proper structured way. Because back then I wasn't structured at all. And I took, I went on and I took a course uh, about life coaching and it was about two years. And uh, I practiced, I collected my hours and the way I started questioning things to myself. So it was really for me to start building up those workshops to be able to deliver what I've been learning on the mountain because I don't think everybody needs to go and climb a mountain to figure out who they are it was Mm. my way and I'm sure there's a different way for everybody Mm. but I just brought in the learnings that I got from there that can help people figure out what they want or go after what they want or achieve their goals so I structured it and then I started doing the one-on-one sessions and this is how I basically do my coaching when it comes to mm. mindset. That growth mindset is what really makes life easy. 
when you approach things and I think I don't know if you've noticed I emphasize a lot about in every situation just look at it in a growth mindset and now I there's a lot happening a lot of things can go wrong I have my own business and for a long time it's been going wrong but the only thing I keep on reminding myself in those really really bad situation is okay what if my growth mindset right now is activated how would it see this and my whole perspective change Mm. and i become solution oriented instead of focusing on the problem Mm. so that's how mountains really developed my growth mindset and that's how i supplemented it with that course and that's how i'm able to do what i do today really interesting because uh as we can see that mountaineering itself has morphed into so much more for you you've turned it into you know dedicating your energy to bringing this mindset shift and breaking barriers and building an image of strong arab women right so it is motivated by the experiences that you've had on the on the mountain So can you tell us about some of the other projects within the community that you are doing? Uh, we know you've got a book for children that you've written. Uh, you've got your own slow fashion brand. So tell us a little bit about how you brought all of that and those experiences and those learnings into some of the other projects that you're doing in the community. Okay. I consider myself someone who's extremely lucky to have experienced what I have and I think it would only be unfair to keep it for myself and not share it with the world. So that's why I did those workshops, coach coaching, but then working with children something I never thought I would do. I'll share with you a short quick story. Mm-hmm. So I never lived in Lebanon. I only visited Lebanon although mm-hmm. I'm Lebanese, mm-hmm. but I lived almost all my life in the UAE. And after the Beirut blast I had to go back. I just felt like I was I mean I'm freelancing, I can work from there, but I need to be on ground. Mm-hmm. So I went with the people and I started working and I teamed up with that happened. So I gave a talk in an NGO called Borderless NGO back in 2019 and um I knew that they were legit. They knew what they're doing. I can trust them. So I contacted them and I said, "Look, I want to come and help you. What is it that I can do?" They're like, "If you can come, please come. We do need help." So I went and I was based in one of the most affected marginalized areas and it was right opposite to the Beirut port. And I was on ground and I didn't know what I was doing. I knew I was doing social work. So anything you'd ask me to do, I would do. So I started using that title of I'm the first Lebanese woman and I was able to get almost 4000 shampoos to the community. Mm. I talked to companies, I talked to people, I used my social media skills to really capture the voices of the people on the ground who are really affected to do something about it. And I was able to see the impact that I like I'm trying to do with the help of course of Borderless NGO. So I'm like, okay, I was supposed to be there for about two weeks. I'm like, I don't think I should leave because I've already built connection with the kids and the mothers. So I was collecting my coaching hours by coaching the mothers mm. and I was teaching the kids. But when I would teach the kids, so the kids were on the street because their houses were blasted. Mm-hmm. And there were other NGOs trying to build houses. Borderless focuses on education and women empowerment and upskilling youth. So I'm like, okay, great, that makes sense. So we had a tent in the middle of a very marginalized area and children would just come Syrian, Palestinian, Lebanese, they're all uh, disadvantaged children and I'd start teaching them 
And I built this connection and I felt like, okay, I cannot go now. It doesn't make sense. So I spoke with the, with the board and I told them, look, I really think there's so much children in this community. Maybe we should build a community center because they already had a community center mm. in a different marginalized community. And I didn't think, or it was just something that I really thought we had to do. And there were no limitations. And they said, sure, okay, can we get the funding? And I went out of my way to really find a way to get the funding. And within three months, we found the place, we found like legit donors, and they built a community center. Amazing. And now I'm like, okay, there's no way I can leave. And then they partnered up with an international NGO who funded education. And now the children, there were about 150 children coming to the center in between, and they were learning, and then there were women. So part of all this, instead of being a social worker, I started project managing and I was doing a lot of things. But at the same time, uh, when things go off or if I want to have conversation, I would tell them, did you know that I climbed Everest? Did you know what's Everest? Do you know it's the highest mountain? And I started telling them about mountaineering and I swear it felt like I took them to the mountain with mm. me. And the questions that they would ask and when I show them the pictures and they're fascinated and they can't believe it because I'm a woman and I had to like work on that and there was so much. And they're like, you should write a book. I will keep my book forever with me. And that just shook me um, because... I've met a lot of people that kept on telling me, you definitely need to write a children's book. I think it would come out great. Uh, maybe one day. I'm not a writer. And then after that, I uh, went back and I reflected on it. And while climbing uh, a mountain in Nepal, I got COVID and it was really horrible. So I had to stay at a hotel room for about 40 days because the airport closed. Oh, goodness. And then I'm like, okay, I can't move. Then I can write. And I wrote the children book during that time. And it took about two years to finish all the illustrations, mm. the writing, and uh, it was out. And uh, it's all about developing their growth mindset, showing them a different part, a different perspective, and giving them, which is the mission, which is dream big and never give up. Yeah. And uh, that's what I do now. I go to schools and share the story with them. I love that sharing like adventures, allowing you know, allowing kids to dream, yeah, yeah. and know that it is possible to achieve yeah. those dreams. I love it. I mean, you faced a lot of challenges. We've talked about it. You're like, you're like, yeah, I had COVID. And then I spent like 40 days in a hotel. And I'm like, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> if that happened to me, I'd be like moaning about it forever. But there's a lot of challenges when it comes to climbing, you know, yeah. and it's inevitable. You put yourself in these situations. You're going to be faced with challenges, getting over them. I mean, Aside from all of the things that happen when you're on an expedition and when you're climbing, what other challenges have you faced, like in terms of funding? Has there been anything in relation to, you know, gender disparity, logistics? What, you know, what are some of the stuff that happens around climbing or that you've experienced? Yeah, I mean, I've experienced a lot of things and I had to sacrifice a lot of things. Mm. And uh, when I sacrificed my social life mm. and it's my choice, uh, I still have friends, but like not a lot. And I think it works very well for me because I'm very goal oriented I face the funding challenges which is not easy mm -hmm. um, you go to donors uh, to donors to sponsors. And, uh, sponsors and they would laugh at you they wouldn't get it and you have to explain and they would doubt you they would instill their fears in you that you start doubting like yeah. should I even do it like and I start thinking yeah they're right I'm just a mountain climber who cares and in my head now, after Vincent and South Pole, I'm like, no, I, that's not, it's not just mountain climbing. No. It is what's really building up things that nobody have, and that's what makes us all unique, and that's how I'm able to give back. 
So yeah, funding is a big one. I had a lot of family issues. I do not speak to my dad at all. Being an Arab woman and not wanting to settle for less uh, was too much. So um, we don't talk at all. It's been mm. more than two years now. There's a lot of sacrifices. Mm. I mean, I don't have a job. I don't have a full-time job. So by the end of the month, I need to figure out ways uh, to mm. do income. And that is a call out on everybody who comes and say, oh, but you're going to have, uh, what do you call it? Uh, exposure. exposure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They give you exposure. <laughs> what? No. Excuse me? Hello? <laughs> no. So, no, money. it takes a lot of time to develop a workshop. It yeah. takes a lot of time mm-hmm. to develop a motivational speech that is catered to a specific company or a school or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. And then people come and expect you to do things for free. And the freelancing um, industry is like we like it needs to take, be taken more seriously because yeah, yeah. people cannot be paid with exposure and uh, followers. It's really skills like you build experience. I mean. I've paid more than half a million dollars to do the Explorer Grand Slam so far, and mm. I'm not even done yet. Yeah. Now imagine you're getting a half a million product to come and speak. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really difficult to show people because it's mm. not the norm, it's mm. not the standard, it's not uh, finance like I used to be, or engineering, or something that you can relate mm. to. It's something out of this world. It makes sense, but it's really hard to digest, so you don't know if it's real or not. So I'm trying to change that and break those barriers, not just for me, because once you break those barriers, there's other women and boys and girls and men who's going to go and do the same. And it should be easier for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always feel that we have the responsibility to keep on breaking barriers, to fight for what we want, because every time I stand up for myself or I fight for for what I want, there's someone else who's going to be following in my footsteps, maybe, and obviously on on their own personal journey. But when they approach those those people, it's going to be easier because mm-hmm. this is what women in history did for us. Yeah. And this is why we have our liberation and our freedom today. They paved the way for us. Mm-hmm. And everybody is responsible to keep on breaking barriers and pave the way for everyone else to come mm-hmm. to make things easier. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. On that, I mean, with the sponsors, are there any sponsors now you'd like to give a shout out to? There's Ras Al Khaimah Tourism. Ras Al Khaimah Tourism. That. Love Ras Al Khaimah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so uh, We find ourselves there every weekend. Yep, we're there well. a lot. Very nice. They did sponsor part, a uh, small part of my South Pole expedition, which was really generous of Great. them. And uh, I teamed up with uh, the South Pole, who paid all my Got a, uh, uh, who bought and paid all the credits for the carbon emissions. So mm. when I flew from uh, Geneva to uh, Antarctica, obviously there's a lot of greenhouse gases from yeah. my flights. So it was all paid for to protect offset. the forest and right. the Caribou, which yeah. was great just to offset it. So I try to stay responsible in the things that I do mm-hmm. and sustainable. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Nice. So next up, um, North Pole, close yeah. to where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> How is training and planning going for this? I mean, each kind of expedition, I would imagine, is its own kettle of fish, right? But surely it must be like more, I don't know, you know what to expect a little. Is that the case or is it completely kind of new with your planning and training? 
I mean, I didn't know what to expect on the South Pole because mm. I've never done something yeah. like that before. But now I have a little bit of idea what to expect on the North Pole, mm-hmm. but it's going to be more challenging. It's it's not as cold as the South Pole, but the North Pole is melting. And finding mm. the way where you don't have to swim to get into a different uh, road. And uh, mm. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, as I said, I go there with an open mind, growth mindset and uh, just be ready for the challenge. But with training, I'm still uh, on. I mean, I just came back from the North Pole. Yeah. So I'm just focusing on zone two right now. It works for me. But I think I'll uh, go higher just before the expedition. Can people track you during it? My partner was tracking me. He okay. did a great job. Yeah. And uh, he was posting on my Instagram about where I was mm. on the South Pole every day. So I follow you on Instagram. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, follow me on Instagram at Mountain Gypsy or on Facebook, Team Adirian. Okay, mm. perfect. I read this somewhere and you can please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, it's not popular or necessary, but there's a submarine expedition that is sometimes by purists considered a part of the Grand Slam. Will you be looking to That's do that? That's called the Trifit. Yeah. Would so, you be interested I mean, in doing that? You've already, at the start of our conversation, you said do water is, may not, may not be your... <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> your, uh, <laughs> I was talking about it to my partner the other yeah. day. So he's someone who really supports what I do. So he's my husband and he's all for me going after what I want and like finishing it. And he's like, have you heard of the trifecta? <laughs> I'm like, don't do that. Like, stop. Like, I just want to finish the Explorer Grand Slam. Right. He's like, but you can go to the deepest point in every ocean, and then you can go to space. I'm like, and who's going to pay for all of this? <laughs> <laughs> like, no. He's like, sponsors. <laughs> and isn't, like, isn't Elon Musk backing you? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I, I have to reach out to him. Uh, but I mean, no, I would love to do it, but I don't want to set the goal. Don't do that for me. <laughs> it's something that's really nice. I've always dreamt on finishing the 14 8,000ers because I love spending two months on the mountain and being in extreme altitudes Mm -hmm. but i'm not gonna set it as a goal because Mm. i'm happy with the exploring grand slam for now Mm -hmm. because i do have other plans i mean i want to grow my slow fashion brand i'm a a very business oriented person i love doing business and business that have impact Mm -hmm. like i mean now with the books and with the workshops and with the talks i mean there's a lot happening and i really think i need to be here to stay focused on Mm -hmm. that and uh when the time comes i mean who cares i can go and climb any four thousand eight thousand or whatever i want i think when i have the time but i'm not gonna say oh i have to finish it and make it a lifetime Mm. plan and i'm now i'm stuck to it Mm. i mean i i i'm good at this phase of my life (laughs) i guess i'm not content yeah on that have you thought about how you're going to feel when you do finish the grand slam because i mean it's been a long journey right and even just for me doing like you know one ultra at the end of it it's a bittersweet moment right like it's kind of like oh it's closed a chapter of you're very happy obviously but it's just you know yeah i I don't know what other better way to describe it than bittersweet have you thought about how you might feel and that's why i keep on putting one goal after the other Mm. and 
and I try not to burn out in between. Mm-hmm. I mean, I build a process, but that's how I said, like, I want to focus on the business side mm-hmm. and uh, like just making more books, growing my slow fashion brand uh, and doing stuff that really like have an impact mm-hmm. and grow me as a businesswoman. Because that's one of like just how I wanted to climb the highest mountain in the world. I wish to represent also Arab women in, in the business because my mm-hmm. mind functions like that. But I do understand the bittersweet part and on Everest I had it because when I climbed Everest the plan was not to do the Explorer Grand Slam mm. was just to finish all the seven summits and Everest was was my sixth summit mm. but then it was the dream and then when I came down and it was done and then a month into it what's next no I was I was lost and mm. it was a scary place to be I'm like I lost sense of direction mm-hmm. and nothing was clear and this is where I started like I had a lot of problems and like w- like I there there was a lot happening in that phase that I just quit everything mm-hmm. and then COVID happened and then I was stuck and things weren't working out for me but it was a scary place because I've been working on this for like six years like Everest 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 and now it's done and now what so what I did now, I learned my lesson. I finished the North Pole and I focused on business mm. instead of a mountain. <laughs> nice. But always set a goal after the other. Yeah. It keeps you going. It, mm. It's what wakes me up every morning, knowing that there is something there that, that I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going after. Mm. I'm getting closer. It's, it's endless. We're always work in progress. We're yeah. always trying to reach something. And the moment we feel, oh, we're done. Now what is, I mean, some people like it and mm. I think they're lucky. Uh, but others don't and they need something and I'm I'm one of those people who really need a goal or the time to feel like I'm alive. Mm. Finally, you've already proven that your body can endure so much if you put your mind to it. You know, yes. you've climbed all these mountains, South Pole's in the rear view mirror, North Pole is up ahead. Mm. Would you then say that the grit that you have is internal, it's an internal fire or... Uh, is it something that you've learned along the way? It's internal. Mm-hmm. It takes, I mean, it definitely grows with experience and practice, but grit is something that comes from within. You really need to want it so bad to be to be able to be patient, to be able to persevere uh, through it because it's not a nice journey like when you don't get what you want. It's great to be on the mountain. That's the easiest part for me. But to get on the mountain is the hardest part. Mm-hmm. How am I going to get funded? The, 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 the obstacles we spoke about. Mm-hmm. How am I going to prove to the world that it's something that's worth investing in? And it's, it's hard and it's all about believing in yourself and to believe in yourself you also need that grit. To be confident you also need that grit. And and I really like how you like hit on the nail on the head, as they say, because grit is what builds up perseverance, determination. It's what wakes you up every morning because now you want it so bad. Imagine you just want to climb a mountain to show the world that you can climb a mountain or to be famous or to, to do something just for, for, for people's approval of it. Mm. It's going to be a very nasty place to be. Mm. You know why? Because you're, you're hurting yourself. You're not doing it for the right reasons. Mm. It might be right for the time being for a person who's doing it. But then on the long run, you just realize that you're burnt out and it's not something that you love doing and you just have to do it. But it's, when it's passion and that passion is turning into something bigger than you, you need to have grit. And that's how it grows. Yeah, Tima, I mean, thank you so much for taking the time to come on to the show, uh, you know, and we can't 
we can't wait to hear all about your North Pole expedition. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of we could have you on a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we'll definitely get you back on, on again yeah. to we hear have about to get the you North back Pole. On the show. Yeah, I'll thank you so much. Appreciate it. No, you yeah. guys are great hosts. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But it's unfair because you both do really cool things, and I have a lot of questions. <laughs> so I'm not sure who's gonna be interviewing. We'll wait for you time. to start your podcast. Yeah, we love it. <laughs> no, really, I'm really proud to be with women like you in this room oh, right now. Thank and you. thank you for putting means up. so much. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, we ask that you please share it with family, teammates, friends, and even frenemies, or share via social media. Please also leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Five stars only. And visit us on themetalset.com for more stories and resources. Thanks again for listening. Your support means the world to us. This is The Metal Set.